It's Thursday, May 30th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Special counsel Robert Mueller made his first public comments in two years since the beginning of the Russia investigation. In his remarks, he recapped some of his findings and made two things clear. Russia did interfere in the election, and his report does not exonerate the president from obstruction of justice. DOJ policy prohibits him from charging a sitting president. Zoe Tillman, legal reporter at BuzzFeed News, joins us for what it all means. Next, this past weekend, another horse died at the Santa Anita racetrack, bringing the total to 26 since December. It is still unclear what is causing the breakdowns, but there are increased calls for a moratorium on racing there. John Sherva, horse racing reporter at the LA Times, joins us to discuss why so many horses are dying at Santa Anita. Finally, do you know what your iPhone is up to in the middle of the night? Even though the screen is off and you're snoring away, app trackers on your phone are busy sending out your data to companies you've probably never heard of. Jeffrey Fowler, tech columnist at the Washington Post, joins us for the secret life of your data and what you can do to limit app tracking. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Special counsel's office is part of the Department of Justice, and by regulation, it was bound by that department policy. Charging the president with a crime was therefore not an option we could consider. Joining us now is Zoe Tillman, legal reporter for BuzzFeed News. Special counsel Robert Mueller made his first on-camera public statement since he was appointed two years ago to lead the Russia investigation into President Trump, whether he or his campaign colluded with Russia and After that, looking into obstruction of justice charges, he had this press conference and I mean, he basically said that he is done. He's closing the office. He's resigning from the Justice Department to be a a regular citizen again. And uh, he went so as far to say that he expects not to testify before Congress, although Congress might have some other things in mind. Tell us what else he said. The thrust of Robert Mueller's statement was, please read the report. What he essentially did was repeat the key findings from the report. And he repeatedly said, as I said in the report, X, Y, Z. So he began by stressing that the focus of his investigation was really whether there was interference in the 2016 election. And he noted that his office concluded, yes, there was, and that they accordingly indicted a number of Russian intelligence officers charged with orchestrating hacks of the Democratic National Committee and Hillary Clinton's campaign, other Russian nationals with running a a disinformation campaign during the election cycle. So that's really where he began with that focus. And then he shifted gears. The other part of his investigation, the part that's gotten far more attention recently, which is whether President Donald Trump committed obstruction in the course of that investigation. And Mueller stressed that ultimately his office did not reach a decision because he said it was off limits that the Justice Department had long maintained that a sitting president cannot be charged, cannot be indicted. And as a result, it was a question that they really couldn't consider. He did say they did not exonerate the president. He said that If they had been able to say conclusively that Trump did not commit a crime, they would have said that. They didn't feel like they were there based on the evidence. But in the end, they said, we didn't decide whether or not he did, in fact, commit a crime. In the report, Robert Mueller looked at 11 different instances that were possible obstruction of justice. And as you said, he didn't make the determination he was never going to. 
even in his remarks, he said it would be unfair to potentially accuse somebody of a crime when there could be no court resolution of an actual charge. This kind of puts it in the ball of Congress now. There's been reaction from uh, some of the 2020 candidates that have said that this is an impeachment referral and it's time for Congress to act on that front. To me, it sounded kind of like Robert Mueller wanted to put it in perspective and say we were never going to charge him. It's up to somebody else to do it. It's up to Congress to continue looking into this. The special counsel was very careful in his wording to avoid saying that directly. Yeah, you can't tell what's going on in his head. (laughs) Right. I mean, we've seen some analysis that if he were to say, I'm putting the ball in Congress's court, that even that would be in a way sort of a conclusion that maybe the president did something wrong that Congress needed to investigate. So he really avoided doing anything or saying anything that would suggest strongly that he thought there was something for Congress to investigate. But that being said, he made clear that the Constitution lays out a process for going after a sitting president for wrongdoing, which is the impeachment process. It's really the way that a president can be removed, assuming the Justice Department sticks with its binding opinion that a sitting president cannot be indicted and criminally charged. The president quickly responded on Twitter after Robert Mueller spoke. What did he have to say about this? Ever since the special counsel has finished and said there was no evidence of a conspiracy between the campaign and Russia, and ever since the attorney general said, you know, even though Mueller didn't reach a conclusion on obstruction, the attorney general said, I'm going to say that there wasn't evidence to charge him with obstruction. The president has lauded this as a complete exoneration, again, notwithstanding the fact that Mueller said we did not exonerate him, but he saw this again as another reason that people should stop paying attention to this. What's been the reaction across Capitol Hill? Nancy Pelosi has spoken up. House Judiciary Chair Jerry Nadler was very forceful, saying that they're going to continue to investigate and pursue criminal charges against the president. What's everybody saying? Nancy Pelosi continues to appear reticent to call for impeachment, even as more Democrats on the Hill, more Democrats who are running for president say that impeachment proceedings are the only option at this point. Pursuing impeachment is a very significant move by any House of Representatives to take on. It's a massive investigation. It's an incredibly politically fraught process. And so it appears that the Speaker is not making that decision lightly if it is something that she is seriously considering. But there are more Democrats out there who are calling for impeachment. Zoe Tillman, legal reporter for BuzzFeed News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. problem with a horse is that it can't be immobile for very long. Generally, the reason that they're euthanized, because you have to keep that fourth leg immobile for so long, it just leads to complications. Joining us now is John Sherva, reporter for the LA Times covering horse racing and sports. We're going to be talking about Santa Anita. There was just another horse that has died at the Santa Anita race park. It's the 26th one so far since December 26th when the winter season started. I think this season ends late June. Just this story has generated national headlines all over the place. There's just so much scrutiny on Santa Anita specifically and then the sport of horse racing in general. Tell us what's going on specifically at Santa Anita. Why are so many horses dying? 
Well, that's certainly the big question is, is people don't really know why. They had this incredible cluster of 23 over six or seven weeks, and then they went six weeks without any breakdowns, with any fatalities, and then now we're back with three and nine days. There's a lot of speculation as to what might be causing it. There was 20 inches of rain, you know, might have compromised the racing surface. What happens is when it rains, what they do is they call what seal the track, which means they, they tamp it down really hard so that the water runs off it and it doesn't become mud. But then horses end up running on a very hard surface, and potentially that could create microfractures that then show up later. That's one theory. Another one is that there's not a good enough vetting process that some horses that shouldn't be running are running. There's no real concrete evidence, but there's a big investigation into that. There's just all kinds of of things, and it's also possible that when this is all over that we won't know exactly what's caused these 26 deaths, or at least most of them. Why do we think we haven't come to a conclusion? I mean, if they say the racetrack is too soft, horse's foot gets caught and, you know, it breaks a leg. Okay, then there's the micro fractures that you were also talking about. Why haven't they been able to pin it down? What do you think is so difficult about finding out the real answer? Because there's not a lot of commonalities. It's not like they're breaking down in one part of the track or on one part of the surface. The horses are all different kind. I mean, the last one to go down was a nine-year-old gelding, which is very unusual because if a horse makes it to nine years old and continues to racing, it's because they know how to take care of their body. They know how to run. They know all the... I don't think we've had any two-year-olds go down, but then we've had our fair share of three-year-olds go down. And the absolute best thing that could have happened to Santa Anita is if they had just, if they'd have said, oh, there's this the soft pothole on the backstretch or something like that, which is what happened at, not that specifically, but when Delmar had its problem on the turf course, they discovered the turf course was flawed. But here it's it's, Tim Ritbo, the COO, calls it multifactorial, and that's really what it is. It could be any number of factors, and they've done all the tests, you know, extensive dirt tests and and just not come up with anything. For listeners that don't follow horse racing very closely, help explain to us, why the horses need to be euthanized. I mean, it's usually a breakdown, they call it. The horse trips over, something happens to their leg, then they have to end up euthanizing them after. What happens there? Basically, the the misconception is that the horse falls or crashes to the ground. That doesn't happen very often. Most of the time, they'll take a step and the jockey will immediately notice it and he'll pull them up. So they're actually just standing there. The problem with a horse is that it can't be immobile for very long. Now, when you think of a table with four legs and you take off one of those legs, can't use it, then it puts extra pressure on the other three legs. Well, in a horse, if you put extra pressure, and these horses weigh 1,000, 1,200 pounds, it really, they're just not designed, and, and I apologize to your, your listeners' advance for the graphic nature of this, but the bone and the other leg is supporting so much weight that it actually will just start pushing down into the hoof. And one of the common diseases is called laminitis, which is where the, the hoof structure cannot support the bone because it's not equally distributed over four legs. That's generally the reason that they're euthanized because you have to keep that fourth leg immobile for so long, it just leads to complications. Horse deaths are just a part of horse racing, the sport in general. How often are these happening and why is there so much interest in it this time? Because, I mean, this is not the first time that this has happened before, obviously. No, Delmar had a problem, Aqueduct had a problem, Saratoga had a problem. I'm not going to say they're common, but they're not uncommon, if that makes any sense. They just sort of cluster at certain tracks at certain times and why they try to figure out exactly 
what went wrong, it changes from different places. Like the, the racing surface, let's say in New Orleans, at fairgrounds, is designed to handle a lot of water. A track at Santa Anita, because we're California, is not designed to handle a lot of water. So these are all just sort of some of the factors that come into why these things you know, just sort of happen. And now, kind of where we are currently, there's a lot of protesters saying that this needs to be stopped. The horse racing needs to be stopped. Senator Dianne Feinstein has called for a moratorium on racing at Santa Anita specifically. Even the LA Times editorial board says that we need to stop this season where it is now. What kind of reforms has Santa Anita put in place and are they helping with anything at least? What you're dealing with here is a public perception problem. Here's the fact. If you have horse racing, horses are going to die. I think the this has gained so much national interest and so much attention, partly because as we've evolved in the last couple of decades, the animal is really that much higher in our consciousness than others. I mean, I have a dog, oh, yeah. and uh, while I do not think my dog is, is equal to me, I would risk my life to save my dog. There was a car chase just the other day in the city where a dog ran out of the RV, and people were more concerned with that dog's safety versus the two cars that the RV slammed into. So, yeah, I mean, totally understand how animals really figure into a lot of people's lives. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great example. I mean, California is, is a more progressive state. It tries to isolate problems, see them, correct them, those sort of things. Like if this happens in Kentucky, people understand horses are going to die in, in horse races. I don't know what an acceptable number is other than zero. Right. And that's what the industry has to kind of come up with is is the fact that our threshold for fatalities is zero, even though it may not be obtainable. And as a matter of fact, it would statistically would not be obtainable. That's all that percolated up and made this happen. John Sherva reporting for the L.A. Times covering horse racing and sports. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Every time you open the app DoorDash, that's the uh, home delivery company for food, every time you open it, it launches nine trackers, including a tracker from Google and a tracker from Facebook, who both get to know every time you open DoorDash. So if you've ever wondered why Facebook knows that you like takeout, that's why. Joining us now is Jeffrey Fowler, tech columnist for The Washington Post. The last time we talked to you, you were on to discuss how Alexa eavesdrops on you and keeps those recordings. Since then, Amazon has said that they're now going to give you the option to tell your Alexa to either one, delete everything I said today or delete what I just said. They're going to roll that out in the next few weeks or so. At least they took note that everybody was really mad that they're constantly keeping your recordings. Indeed. Close but no cigar. What we really want is for Amazon to stop keeping these recordings in the first place. Yeah. And they still do not give us that option, even though our rival Google does give us that option. So got to step up harder, Alexa. So today we, you know, you're doing this uh, kind of series, the secret life of our data, and you took a look into how our iPhones are communicating with app trackers and other third-party companies, sending our data to them. And you guys did an experiment; it showed that there was five thousand four hundred hidden app trackers that were transferring your data in a single week. Tell us about what you guys did this time. It's completely nuts how much my phone was getting up to without me having any idea about it. The original premise of this was just, I looked at my phone and I said, I wonder what it does while I'm sleeping at night. 
So I worked with a guy who actually used to work at the NSA. Now he's the chief technology officer of a company called Disconnect, their privacy company. And he helped me connect my phone up to software that was uh, able to keep logs of all the traffic going in and out of the phone, particularly while I was asleep at night. So I started you know, keeping these logs and then looking in it. And the next morning, I would find my phone was talking with a whole bunch of companies that I'd never heard of, and in many cases, sending them really personal information, my exact GPS coordinates, my email, my phone number, the other apps on my phone, ways to fingerprint my phone. I mean, basically, you name it, it was going out to these companies I'd never heard of. These companies turn out to be trackers. Trackers in apps are just kind of like cookies on the web. The problem in apps is we don't get any notice like that. We have no idea what's going on. And the apps that we use every day are filled with them. Everybody thinks, well, I'm not using my phone. It's inactive. The screen is dark. So you think it's not doing anything, but this is just all happening behind your back. So these trackers are giving these other companies a lot of times a fingerprint of your phone, other data. What exactly is it sharing? It's a whole range of stuff. And I use the definition of trackers. This is a company that is collecting and storing your data without having pro-consumer kind of privacy policies. And those are things like you know, a plan to delete that data and a plan to protect it and being really clear about who all gets to share it. Within that, companies say they're doing all kinds of things. They say they're trying to figure out whether there's fraud happening on the phone. They say they're trying to figure out how we use the app. And then, of course, a lot of them are in there for marketing or maybe to target ads to you somewhere else entirely. For example, every time you open the app DoorDash, that's the uh, home delivery company for food, every time you open it, it launches nine trackers that do a whole bunch of different kinds of things, including a tracker from Google and a tracker from Facebook, who both get to know every time you open DoorDash. So if you've ever wondered why Facebook knows that you like takeout, (laughs) that's why. I was so shocked about that one because I use DoorDash. So, you know, these are the types of things that strike a chord with a reader or a listener. It's like, oh my God, I use that app. And then now you're writing about it. It's like, there's nine different trackers. So a lot of times they share the fingerprint of your phone. So it could be your device name, which, you know, Oscar's iPhone or something like that. The model, the memory size of your phone and other ad identifiers. It's, it's pretty crazy how detailed some of this data that gets transferred over. The part that hit me was that this was all happening on an iPhone. You may remember a couple of months ago at CES, Apple put up this billboard in Vegas trying to make fun of the rest of the tech industry. And the billboard said, what happens on your iPhone stays on your iPhone. Yep, I've seen it. Clearly, that is not true. I did not find evidence of that. It didn't even stay on my iPhone while I was sleeping at night. How do a lot of these companies square this away? Because a lot of times they're saying, well, we don't allow third-party apps to sell your data, but then this stuff is happening. It's kind of, they take this hands-off approach to it. They say, well, we're not allowing them to do it, but they're not responsible for the privacy practices of their company. They sort of throw their hands in the air and say, oh, it's not really our problem. A lot of them hide behind privacy policies that of course, A, none of us ever read, and B, are so vague, they kind of allow anything to happen. So they say, yeah, we might share your data with third parties, and then there's no controls put in place about, well, what do those third parties do with your data? The company that you were working with for this article, Disconnect, they offer a free app for iOS that helps you look to see what's tracking you also. They do. It's called Privacy Pro. And I will say this is, you got to be kind of a techie person to use this. This isn't for, you know, someone who's you know, sort of barely keeping up with what's going on their iPhone. But if you are a little techie, give it a try. Privacy Pro, there's a free version. 
And when you open the app, it'll offer to give you a subscription to their VPN service, which they also do sell. But you can close that out. You don't have to take that. And you can still get the free benefits of the app, which are labeling what trackers are leaving your phone and also blocking some of them. And it gives you some options to do that. Jeffrey Fowler, tech columnist for The Washington Post. Thank you for joining us. You bet. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.